0: Merry Christmas Eve. Um, This morning we want to welcome uh, some people who, uh, boy, things are just falling apart here. Uh, Got a big splinter coming off. Well, when you move, things get jiggled, don't they? I should make a note about the sound system. Um, Apparently... Uh, Without any warning, the sound system will switch the the, the internal in the board, probably, they say it is. But it'll switch, uh, whether it's going to the speakers or to the monitors. And what you were hearing all morning were the monitors uh, echoing off the walls. So all the highs were cut out. And so now what they've done is taken the monitor wires and flipped them onto the speakers. But it's sporadic. You can't reproduce it. Which are great problems to have you know when you take your car into the guy to be serviced and you say it does this and he says well it didn't do that for me and you say well it's sporadic well that's what's going on with our soundboard it's sporadic and so any particular sunday we don't know what will happen or how it will happen so anyhow that's what they're having to cope with um i wanted to welcome uh brad and jama which i think you're here right is jama here Hello, Jema. Welcome back. We're happy to have you. You don't look very tan. Have you been working inside? Well, we're happy to have you and your kids. Welcome back, all of you, and I'm sure we'll all take an opportunity to greet you, and uh, welcome to the rest of you that are visiting. We're happy to have you here. Now, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, um, I have chosen for our text uh, a surprising text for the day before Christmas Luke chapter 2 and I'd like you to open to Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 1 we'll read it in a couple of uh, minutes the title of this sermon is good news of great joy and as we think about the good news of Christmas we have to reorient ourselves to have the proper expectations because joy and happiness um, and good news and hope are not things that the world uh, has left to Christians and to Scripture and to, to the Lord. They have taken them to themselves and they have claimed that they have them. Um, there are many different ways that uh, you can claim to be living the good life. Um, I read an article this last week about how at the very center of rap music is cocaine, that cocaine has been restored to a respectable position um, with young people today and particularly with the uh, hip-hop community and the rap community, and that there's all kinds of... uh, uh, secret words and, and, and uh, metaphors for cocaine and particularly for selling cocaine among rap artists uh, that they like to cop a posture of being um, big big coke dealers and certainly this would not entice anybody if the reality of crack were, were to be shown um, you know The article made the comment, uh, Keith Richards, remember when he fell out of the palm tree this last year? And they said that the joke going around uh, among other entertainers was that they wondered how much there was left in Keith Richards' head. And this is because of what uh, crack causes. Another thing you noticed this last week was that um, it was announced that the use of illegal drugs has finally declined, Uh, but why? Well, the reason it's declined is that now our young people are using prescription drugs, in other words, legal drugs, in an illegal way, so I'm not sure that it's anything good, right? Well, why? Well, it's clear that uh, drugs are seen as a way of having hope and joy. Uh, Normally, people don't take drugs, whether they're legal or illegal, so that they can feel more miserable, more hopeless. Well, yesterday, I had the joy of going over and visiting uh, Jeff and Amanda and Amanda's parents. I don't know who you guys are, but I'm sure I'll meet you afterwards. And uh, over at the hospital, holding a little baby and if you want to look at the opposite of rap and the opposite of coke and the opposite of keith richards and mick jagger <laughs> what is it well it's 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 little anna miriam and it's little babies and it's little children if you think about hope and little children one of the beauties of Children And one of the reasons those of us who are seeing our children leave uh, are somewhat sad about it is that children bring into the home hopefulness. You can take a little child and you can look at the child and say, guess what? And immediately that child's prepared to believe that the world will change tomorrow. And the most wonderful thing, and you can say, guess what? Tomorrow, Mommy's going to give you a spanking. And the child would go, really? <laughs> because, of course, your face and your words, everything is, this will be neat. You know, and so even though they know the word spanking, you can actually fool them into looking forward to getting that special gift tomorrow. We have, a, uh, we have tricks we like to play with... Uh, well, I'm not sure whose dog to call it at this point. I guess it still is Ben's dog. <laughs> there is some posturing going on in our home right now. <laughs> it's Taylor's dog, Ben's dog, Michael's dog. Um, but anyhow, with Congo, you can you can do that. Uh, what is it that you can? Yeah, you were the one that did it with him. You would you would say things that were the opposite. What was it? You know what I'm talking about, Taylor? You know what I'm talking about. Where No, 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 that's Dave Carell. You're the one that does that with your dog. Tell him what you do. Go ahead, tell him. I mean, you are twisted. (laughs) (laughs) So give us an example. says that to me all the time (laughs) and so you think of little children and you think hopefulness is at the center of their existence and it's a beautiful thing and grandchildren bring that into your home now what happens to little children little children grow up and one of the things that's a mark of uh reaching teenage years where you make the transition to adulthood is a loss of hope and you think about uh, the kids that are in our junior high schools think about goth kids in junior high schools now some goth kids are goth uh, just because it's cool and it doesn't really have a connection to their hearts but a lot of kids are goth because that's what their hearts are their hearts are dark Uh, When they wear skulls and crossbones, you know, it's 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 an indication of a lack of hope in their life. They reach high school. They reach college. There are many, many of our young people who are fatalistic and who are dark. And we all know this. In fact, many of them are even looked up to by, other, by their peers, by other young people, because they seem to have taken on, at a, year, at a young age, the ability to be adult. Now think about that. You know, that it's a mark of being an adult that you're dark, that you don't have the ability of being excited. Nothing good will happen. You're not hopeful and you're not joyful. And so the other kids look up to you because you're so sophisticated. Right? You look at many people as they age, and it is true. That is, there is a hardening of the arteries. There is also a hardening of hope. I, probably the saddest death I've ever been at was a man whose life... Uh, I was his pastor, and his life, that of himself and his wife, was a life of, of uh, oh, just very, very sad and crusty materialism. And they weren't that rich. You know, it wasn't a function of them having a lot of money. It was just a function of money and their possessions clearly being all that mattered. Every single thing about their life was clean and perfect do you understand their cars inside and out their dress the way they spoke to you when you went in their home everything was perfect and there was no life in their eyes there was never the slightest uh, um, depth to them at all everything was perfect completely superficial and I remember this particular man, this was not here in this state, this particular man died of congestive heart failure, which is a very, very awful way to go. And as he died, uh, I remember that his wife was out in the waiting room chain-smoking. I, I don't know that I ever saw her in the room where he was dying. And uh, finally, I went into the room uh, to spend time with him and tried to speak to him of his soul. And I say tried, well, pastors know when they're in the room when people don't want you to deal with their souls. Pastors know. It's real clear. And here he is at the end of his life and I asked him whether he was prepared to die and immediately, you know what came out of him? Immediately. He said, I'm not afraid to die and that was how he went he shut down any hope of any conversation about eternity and it was just a very very tragic death his, his arteries had hardened his his heart had swollen and uh, moths had eaten and the rust had corroded and his wife didn't want to be with him as he died And he didn't want to speak of his soul. Now, be honest. That's what this world is headed to. This world that we live in is that. That is this world. And we have a lot of different ways of covering it up. A lot of different holidays when we can have the aspect of joy. I was very interested this last week to read... um, Calvin, John Calvin, you know, centuries ago, talking about how at Christmas and at the New Year, people try to cover up their joylessness with parties. I thought, you know, things don't change that much, do they? Um, And there are joys that God gives us. Uh, The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And God, it amazes me. I mean, when I think back when my wife and I were first married, it amazes me that God gave a child to us. We were completely undeserving of Heather when she came. And yet, all of a sudden, this bundle of joy is dropped into your home. So the rain does fall on the just and the unjust. And the Lord does give many good things. We think of rainbows and rain and and food and, and, and the love of people that really, by all rights, ought not to love us. Right? Right? We are. You are. I mean, you know I am, but you are unlovable. Really. I mean, there are a few of you that are lovable, but most of us aren't, and yet we have hope springing eternal from our wives and our husbands and our children who love us. So there is an awful lot of joy and hope in this world that comes because God has not yet given us what we deserve. But make no mistake about it, God is just. And God has promised that the day will come when there will be a judgment seat and when every person will be rewarded precisely according, precisely according to their what? Just deserts, what they deserve. Now, think of little ones. Think about the hope that's in their life. Think about old ones who are dying without Christ, Christless. Not religionless. Uh, World religions, besides Christianity, are all an effort to cope with sin, but they all will fail. They will all be crushed under Jesus Christ. Think of those who die without Christ and without hope and joy. And then say, what is this statement that the angels brought that they bring us good news of great joy? Let me read to you from uh, the passage of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And this is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And you don't know this the way I'm reading it because I'm reading it from the New American Standard Bible. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid.'" For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so what the, what the message of the angel is... Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, think about our own receptivity to joy and to hope. Uh, How many of us are going to be uh, able to be convinced that there is good news of great joy? If I were to come to you today and I were to say to you, I have some good news what would you hope about now think you're a farmer or not a farmer but a shepherd now I used to uh, pastor a number of farmers and I think farmers may well be the single group most resistant to any reception of good news (laughs) now how would you convince a farmer that there is good news Tell the farmer that there's a new program, a new farm program coming out of Washington. Uh, Tell him that uh, the Farmer's Almanac predicts a very, very good, good crop year this coming year. Uh, That all his cows are going to calve uh, successfully. That his butterfat content has gone up. Uh, I don't know. Um, That his son's going to come back. Take the farm from the Father and that they will not fight. It would be pretty difficult to come up with good news. Maybe the land tax is going down. Well, here you have farmers or shepherds out in their fields. They're not with their loved ones because they have to be with the sheep. And it's nighttime. And all of a sudden, the sky is filled with the most incredible fireworks show you can imagine. But it's not fireworks. It's, it's real. It's angels. And it's a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And they're praising God, and it's very, very intimidating. And immediately the shepherds are trembling with fear because every time angels come from the presence of God this is a response of sinful men to realize their sin and to be deathly afraid because they know they're standing in the presence of holiness and uh, so the angels say to them don't be afraid and what they go on and say they tell the shepherds that there's an announcement that they need to hear and that the announcement is that there has been a birth, um, and the birth is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, we have to understand the word Savior. You can't fully appreciate the good news today unless you have an understanding of the need of a Savior that the Jews felt 2,000 years ago. And it's a tough thing for us because we have, uh, as Americans, we have never been raised to need anybody, to need anyone. And uh, certainly not God's help. In fact, one of our favorite sayings is that God helps those who help themselves. We have been taught to be autonomous and self reliant in almost all aspects of our lives, even in the marriage relationship. One of the most difficult things we have um, as pastors is to deal with the fact that uh, many parents raise their children, their sons and daughters, to be independent, even in their marriage, that uh, both the husband and the wife should be able to handle things on their own because, after all, people get divorced, people leave each other. And so you have men and women preparing to be married and yet independent, (laughs) able to handle it. I will survive. Um, And so even in the relationship where they're supposed to be the greatest Interdependence, dependence, uh, mutuality, intimacy, uh, leaning on each other. Uh, in that relationship, we have lifted up this American ideal of autonomy and uh, uh, independence. Well, in order to understand what a savior is, we have to put to rest these American concepts of being self-reliant, uh, being a Clint Eastwood. Um, If we asked each other what it is that we're celebrating at Christmas, it's probable that most of us would answer that it's a celebration of a Savior being born. And we would use the word Savior. But what is a Savior and what does it mean for a Savior to be born to us? Well, the word Savior is frequently used in Scripture and it's tied to the concept of deliverance. A number of different kinds of deliverance are spoken of in Scripture as salvation, And the word salvation and save, these two words are both used interchangeably all through Scripture. For instance, if you look in the Old Testament, uh, they're used with being kept and preserved. Uh, In the New Testament, when Peter was trying to follow Jesus as he walked on water, and you remember how he began to slip under the water, what did he cry out to Jesus, you remember? He said, Lord, save me. And so if you're about to be drowned, you want to be saved. Being saved is also the words that are used with reference to being healed from illness or disease. In Matthew 14, we're told that people brought their sick to Jesus and begged Him to let the sick just touch the edge of His cloak. And all who touched Him were healed. And this word healed can be also translated saved. They were saved, what? From their disease. You know, saved from cancer, saved from demon possession, saved from blindness, saved uh, from whatever their disease were. All who touched him were saved. Saved and salvation were also used with reference to being delivered from shipwrecks at sea, uh, from escaping death, for a safe return home. They returned home safe. They were saved. But probably one of the most frequent uses of the word is in connection with military victories all through the Old Testament. Uh, References to God's delivery uh, are references to God's salvation from the attack of the enemy. In the Old Testament, the most consistent threat was military, so deliverance was most frequently spoken of in military terms, and military heroes were most frequently called saviors. In Judges 3.9, when they cried out to the Lord, it says, He raised up for them a deliverer, a savior, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who what? Who saved them. In Judges 3.15, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and He gave them a Savior, or a Deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gareth, the Benjamite. In Nehemiah 9.27, it says, So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them, but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them Deliverers who rescued them, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And so you have this theme all through the Old Testament um, of God being the Savior of his people when they are put into captivity, when they are about to be killed, when they need to be delivered from oppression. God is their Savior. And this continues in the time of Christ. Uh, 2,000 years ago, people referred to their leaders, great and small, as saviors. The Roman Emperor Augustus in 2 B.C. was described, quote, this way, as protecting God and savior of the whole human race, unquote. And this was because, quote, land and sea enjoy peace and the cities flourish under your good government, unquote. A little later, Nero was referred to, Nero, as, quote, God the Savior forever, unquote. And even local governors were called Savior. If we watch the great themes of Scripture, the highest instance, other than our Lord Jesus Christ, of deliverance or salvation is the deliverance of the children of Israel from their oppression and from, as they were at the Red Sea, the certain death that was approaching them at the hands of the Egyptians. And in Exodus 14:30, we read, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Remember how Joseph said last week that peace comes through the sword? And it's very stark, the contrast here, between the salvation of the people of God and the death of of the Egyptians that they were filled with joy as the Egyptians lay dead on the shore in Psalm 106 7 celebrating this deliverance it says when our fathers were in Egypt they gave no thought to your miracles they did not remember your many kindnesses and they rebelled by the sea the Red Sea yet he saved them for his namesake to make his mighty power known in Psalm 106.10, He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, He redeemed them. And then if we look at the song that Moses and the Israelites sang when the Lord delivered them in Exodus 15.1, we have, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. God, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read promise deliverance to his people. In Deuteronomy 22, we read, When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. And he shall say this, quote, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Now we think about uh, Psalm 20 that says, uh, "Some hope in horses and chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God." And we think about uh, the issue of America's military, and it's very difficult for us today not to believe that ultimately we'll be saved. What by the, the largeness of our borders, by the fact that America has never really been invaded, um, by the fact that we have the fastest jets, we have the biggest bombs. We have the most money to sustain our army and to sustain the military. And so it's very difficult for us as Americans today not to think that our protection, our salvation comes from what? Our wealth and our military. And yet the people of God were taught that it was God himself who was their savior. And so we see this theme of salvation coming again and again in Scripture. And it's not limited to military salvation. But it's also uh, a part of the content in the Old Testament of them looking forward to the coming of a Messiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, God makes this promise. He says, The days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our soldier. Now, I I misquoted one verse. It's not the Lord, our soldier. It's the Lord our righteousness. Now think about this: If hope and joy are at the center of Christmas, and we all know that the hope and joy is not the hope of finally having your mother get it right when she gives you a gift, we always laugh every Christmas about the year my mother gave me a woman's sweater with shoulder pads. This is a true story. I did model it for my family. Another Christmas, I remember my mother gave me a, a red ski jacket, which is what I asked for, but actually it was one of these liners that you put in like, you know, uh, uh, a barn coat with like the quilting that went along. That was probably my most disappointing present. Um, joy and hope don't come from our gifts. We know that. We teach our children that. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves the question, um, what, When the shepherds were in the fields and the angels said to them, uh, we bring you good tidings of great joy, what were they expecting God to do? What was the hope of the Messiah? Now, if you have read any of the Gospels, you know that the hope of the Messiah that the Jews had, and I would say even the disciples, their hope was what? Their hope was that they would be able to escape the oppressive Roman Empire their hope was a political and a military hope now this is not difficult for us to understand if you were to go into Iraq today and you were to ask them what would be their greatest hope many 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 of them would say that their greatest hope would be that the United States would leave that our military would leave we know that and it's completely understandable if you go back 2,000 years and you think of the oppressive Roman Empire the massive power that it had particularly financially and militarily that the Jews chafed living under that authority And that the Jews look forward to the time when the Messiah, who's like David, and after all, what did David do? He cleaned up the promised land and he brought in independence. He he presided over the greatest glory of the nation of Israel in the ancient world when David, a man of blood, fought all the battles and cleaned up the kingdom. All right? A Messiah is coming. He's going to be in the lineage of David. He will end the Roman oppression. And so they hear good news of great joy. What are they thinking? They're all thinking, we're going to have a military and a governmental Messiah who is going to end the oppression of this foreign empire over us. That's what they're thinking. But did you hear what the prophecy actually says? It actually says, the days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. <clears throat> this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Think of Joshua in the Old Testament. Same name as Jesus. And they both mean what? Jehovah or God is salvation. Alright, that's what the name means. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from Rome. But that's not what it says. It says he will save his people from their sins. Now listen, people. You know the shell game. Right? You all know the shell game where you sit on the street corner and rip off people by sleight of hand. You know, you take cards and you shuffle them and then make them guess which card is where. And, you, and sometimes they put them under cups and you pick the cup up and it's not cards then. I don't know what it is. Pennies or balls? Whatever. But it's a shell game. And we are perpetually playing a shell game with Christmas. We're taking the joy of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ the Messiah sent to pay the penalty for our sins. And we're exchanging it with uh, sentimentality, with beauty, with family, with gifts, with Christmas carols, with food, with, with anything other than being saved from our sin. And this is precisely what the disciples and the Jews did at the time of Christ. They were told, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And they were perpetually looking for Jesus to finally whoop up on the Romans. That's what they wanted him to do. So, the application of the message that the angels gave to the shepherds do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people, is to say to us today. What is the joy of Christmas? What is it? And we know the words of the carol, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And he is our king because he made the universe, but he's also our king because he is the one who has done the battle that has rescued our souls from our sin. When I think of joy, real joy, not the joy that you get watching a football game on television, not the joy that you get around the table, not even the joy that you get when you and your wife are at harmony and you're surrounded by your children and your grandchildren. When I think of real joy, there are two things that I think of immediately. One is uh, the title of C.S. Lewis's autobiography. Remember what he calls it? He calls it Surprised by Joy. And in that book... This uh, Oxford professor, highly educated, right, talks about how his whole life as an adult was trying to reproduce the little joys that he remembered having as a child. All right? And he had a number of ways of trying to reproduce them or trying to get them. And in this book, Surprised by Joy, this is what Lewis says about how he finally came to discover joy. He says, Every step I had taken from the absolute to spirit and from spirit to God. And don't make the mistake of thinking that when people speak of spirit, they mean God. No, 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 no. Everybody wants to be spiritual. Everybody wants to be religious. But listen to Lewis. He says he came from absolute to spirit and from spirit to God. All right? All right had been a step toward the more concrete, the more imminent, and the more compulsive. And at each step, I had less chance to call my soul my own. And then he says this, to accept the incarnation was a further step in the same direction. So this is at the center of his explanation of how he came to have joy. That he came to no longer call his soul his own. And he came to accept the truth of the Incarnation. Now, what is the Incarnation? The Incarnation is God taking on flesh. That's what the word literally means. You take on flesh, God. And so God himself comes into the womb of a woman. He he is given birth to by that woman. And he is there present in the body of this little baby. And C.S. Lewis puts his finger right at that point and says, There is where I came to have joy. When I accepted the incarnation that God became flesh man. Then I also think of another uh, intellectual, a man named Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician, philosopher, uh, one of the most brilliant minds who has ever lived. And after Pascal died, his servant was going through his clothes. And uh, you might wonder, why would a servant go through your clothes afterwards? And he found something sewn up in the seams, and you might think, what on earth? I've never gone through anybody's clothes feeling the seams. Well, the reason that they did that, if you read any of the sort of old war novels, you'll find that it was very common to uh, take gold and sew it up in your seams, that that's where you'd hide things from people. And so I think, yeah, I might be wrong, but I wouldn't doubt that the servant was wondering whether there was a little bit of wealth that had been missed, you know. Anyhow, what do you think the servant found sewn up in Pascal's seams? Well, he found a parchment on which Pascal himself had written this. This is what he had written and sewn up in the seams of his clothes discovered after he died. Quote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is life eternal, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I not fall from him forever. I will not forget your word. Amen. That's joy. Joy is not Coke. Joy is not family or marriage. Joy is not gifts. Joy is not even Christmas carols. Joy is the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, one last caution before we end. It is impossible to feel the joy of salvation, the salvation of Jesus, without going through repentance. And repentance is humiliating. Because you have to look your wife in the eye. And you have to admit who you are. You have to look to your parents. And you have to know that when you look your parents in the eye, they're going to say, I told you. Your wife is going to say, I told you. Now, I don't mean that you have to repent to your wife and to your parents. That's not my point. But my point is that there's no repentance to God that does not become visible to everybody that we love. Do you understand what I mean by that? And so we're always faced with the question of whether we're going to just try to get along looking as clean as we possibly can spiff ourselves up to do. You know? And settle for something that allows us to retain a little bit of our pride. Or whether there's just going to be unconditional surrender with God and then we look like a horse's is to everybody around us and they're all going, I told you. And that's where Satan gets us. And Satan says, nah, that's not for you. That's for weaklings. That's for Americans. That's for Christians. You know, think of, uh, think of how humiliating that is. Meditate on it a little while. I mean, do you really need to do that? You know that you've been a better son than your sister's been a daughter to your parents. And and why lead her on to think that she can continue to be proud? She's a scoundrel. Stand up to her. Don't humble yourself. One of the sadnesses that I have as a pastor is seeing how often it is that family members do everything they can to keep their loved ones from humbling themselves and from repenting and from believing in jesus christ and sometimes it's done by bitterness sometimes it's done by trivialization sometimes parents trivialize the lives of their children and remove their children ever from experiencing true failure and true knowledge of their sin That's one of the reasons that a lack of discipline in the home is so destructive. Discipline is one of those moments where you're able to expose to your children the true condition of their hearts. And then to tell them that it's precisely for that that Jesus Christ died. And so I want you to realize you can't have the joy of Christmas without having the sorrow of looking at yourself. You know, I'm convinced that high school kids and junior high school kids and college kids have a deep, deep knowledge of their own sin. And I think that one of the most beautiful gifts of joy that we can give the children and the young adults that God gives us to care for as a church is the freedom to confess their sins and to acknowledge that they do need a Savior. So... Here's my point. My point is that when we look at the joy that is announced to the shepherds, that joy has to pass through a deep knowledge of our own need of a Savior. And it's not the Savior that will take America out of Iraq or that will take Rome out of Palestine. But it's the Savior who will take the sin, the burden of sin, from our hearts and the hearts of our children and our parents. And we'll lay it at the foot of the cross where it's paid for by the blood of that little baby who grows up to do the work of redemption. So put that back at the center of your Christmas this year. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is the Christmas message. So, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Who was that? Thank you, sweetie. Merry Christmas to you too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the little child of Bethlehem who came to bear the burden of our sins. We thank you, Father, for Mary who was willing to have this child swell her belly. This little child that she nursed This little child that she loved and this little child who broke her heart when he hung upon the cross, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, we thank you for the joy of Christmas. And we pray that every soul here today may believe that God has rightly diagnosed him or her and that they are hopeless because of their sin but that also God has loved them so much that he has sent a Savior whose name is Jesus and who is able to save them from their sin. Now, Father, feed us at this table, we pray. Feed us this Christmas. May Jesus Christ and his salvation be at the center of our sinful but hopeful homes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's fitting that on the day of Christmas Eve when we have very much the incarnation at the front of our minds when He took on flesh that we also have at the front of our minds and here at this table His passion, His death when He Himself bore the sins of the world. And it is through the Lord's Supper, that we remember Him giving His His blood and His body for us. Him turning aside the Father's wrath, that He came to die. He did not come to be a baby. He was, but He came to die. And when He died, that He bore the sin of those that the Father gave Him. Now, This table is not a table for the world. It's a table only for the people of God. And who are the people of God? The people of God are those who have confessed their sin and who have received their Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith. Uh, And so if you have not acknowledged and made an unconditional surrender before God, uh, and if you have not, Trusted in Jesus Christ, his blood for your cleansing. Please do not profane this holy table. Uh, It's not for holy people except as they're holy in Jesus Christ. So we're not saying that we're holy and, and those of you that don't believe aren't holy. We're all not holy. But some of us have been united through faith with Jesus Christ and therefore have his holiness covering us and can come to this table without being consumed by the wrath of God. And it is for your protection if you do not believe that you do not come to this table because God will not tolerate treating holy things in a profane way. And the sacrament is holy by prayer and by the promise of God. And so if you do believe in Jesus Christ, even if you're a member of some other Bible-believing church but not this one, we welcome you to this table. Uh, If you're a Lone Ranger Christian who doesn't see the need to submit to the leaders of any church, again, I... I tell you, you may not come to this table because this table is not given directly from God to individuals, but rather it is given by God to his church and through the elders of the church to individuals. And that's why these men are sitting in front of you, because they will serve you and uh, they are your elders. Now, if you if you do have a desire to believe in Jesus Christ, we would love to talk to you after this service. And we would love for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, and up until now you've been rebellious against the authority Christ has put in his church, uh, right after the service, come to the elders and tell them you want to be under their authority, and we would be joyful in uniting with you in future uh, meals of this table with you. I'm going to read from the book of 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, the words of institution of the supper of our Lord as they're given to us by the Apostle Paul and he writes this 1st 1 Corinthians 1123 to 26 I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me And then after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who admits your people into such wonderful communion that partaking of the body and blood of your dear son, they should dwell in him and he in them. We unworthy sinners approaching your presence and seeing your glory do abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. We have grievously sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have broken our past vows. We have dishonored your holy name. And we are unworthy of the least of all your mercies. And yet now, most gracious Father, have mercy upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Forgive us all our sins. Purify us from all uncleanness in spirit and in flesh. Make us able heartily to forgive others as we ask you to forgive us. And grant that after this, we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. O God, who by the blood of your dear Son has set apart for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies, give us, we ask you, the assurance of your mercy and sanctify us by your Holy Spirit that drawing near to you with a pure heart and a clean and undefiled conscience, we may offer You a sacrifice in righteousness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.